Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. A lot of what makes great cultures is bound up in tacit knowledge. You know, stuff that's quite hard to codify, quite hard to formalize. And consequently, it's quite hard to lift and copy that stuff. So I think if you do create a culture that's that's different and that works for your organization and you know how it works for your organization, you have that sense of agency and that sense of insight around it. I think it can give you a, a competitive advantage that is sustainable. This is Matt Grimshaw, founder of The Pioneers, which are a digital agency that designs and builds modular people management solutions for scale-ups who want to make their culture a source of competitive advantage. And in this conversation, we talk about the power of getting culture right and how it becomes your competitive advantages so you can stand out in a crowded marketplace. Matt shares some of the best practices he's seen when it comes to implementing tech that supports the organization in building a culture they need to deliver their purpose and vision. We also discuss the typical traits of successful organization and how important it is to learn from these and start a journey to unlearn the more traditional top-down leadership and organizational models which will struggle to adapt to the needs and demands of employees and customers. We also discuss the typical traits of successful organization and how important it is to learn from these and start a journey to unlearn the more traditional top-down leadership and organizational models which will struggle to adapt to meet the demands of employees and customers in the future. Matt gives a comprehensive overview of what he thinks are the mega trends for the future of work. And we also discuss the current staffing crisis in hospitality. Before you tune in, please sign up for a weekly newsletter packed with more Maverick insights, strategies, and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. Please also download a free copy of From Fragile to Agile white paper, which is done in cooperation with Bisimply. You will find it on bisimply.com under the resource tab or via the link in the show notes. We have some great insights and solutions in there for improving your leadership game. And this episode will make you rethink about how you look at people as tech as your main source of competitive edge. Today, we will have a conversation about a really a subject that, you know, most of you guys out there know lies very close to my heart and something I'm very passionate about. Exactly, you know, how you use culture as your competitive advance combined with technology, because how do you actually get people and technology to drive the business forward? And how do you make your business better with these two elements? And for that, I have a great guest for you guys. It's Matt from the, the Pioneers today. So welcome to the show, Matt. 
thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. And Matt, we, we had a couple of conversation prior to this and uh, there was so much to be talked about. So we really, I really hope we got to the, the core of it because I know you have some great experience both with hospitality businesses, working with both culture and technology, but also outside the hospitality industry because we can learn so much from each other across industries. So, so for people to get a better idea about who you are, Matt, and the business you're part of and what kind of problems you solve and, and the whole purpose behind it, can you just give you like the, the, the elevator pitch of, of the story before you launch the business and, the, and, and what you're doing today? Uh, let's start with the purpose of the pioneers. Uh, essentially, we're in the business of trying to make people happy at work. My personal worldview, I'm one of those sort of fairly convinced atheists. I think, you know, most of us have got 60, 70 years of useful life, and then we're going to go into a box. Um, and when you look at that 60 or 70 years, you the biggest investment of your time is going to be in sleep, right? You're going to spend about a third of that time asleep. And then for most people, uh, the next biggest investment of the time is going to be at work. You're going to spend more time at work than you spend with your family or doing the things you enjoy or traveling or anything like that. So, uh, you know, that's a that's a pretty big investment of everyone's time. And for me, I think most people's experience of work is like pretty mediocre. You know, like if you ask most people, you know, how's work? They'll, oh, they'll say, oh, it's it's yeah, it's fine. Um, and and I think we all have such low expectations about work, what work can offer us. Um, and and yeah, the, the sort of the, the motivation behind the pioneers is I think we've seen there are organizations that appear to do a much better job of that. Right. There are organizations where people really uh, get a lot out of their work, where they really flourish at work, um, where they're happy in that sort of like I go back to my little bit of uh, uh, Greek philosophy that eudaimonic happy rather than hedonic happy you know like that sense of flourishing that sense of finding a, a flow and getting better at something and contributing to something and uh yeah we, we're we're try in the business of trying to help organizations do more of that sort of stuff how do you actually get to that point where you you launched the pioneers and i guess it must come from that you were working in something and you were looking at that and thought there must be a better way this can be done different. Yeah, I um, I a long time ago I used to work for a manufacturing business back in sort of 2007, 2008, around about the time of the financial crisis. And um, initially there was a lot of, as you can imagine, a lot of restructuring, redundancy, that sort of thing. And then as the market recovered, it was a question of how can you, how long can you hold on to that lower cost base and respond to increasing demand, which essentially meant how how do you get how do you get more out of fewer people. Um, and I was very fortunate to be given the chance to, to go and talk to talk to and work with the with the people on the shop floor, uh, because it was my opinion that that we didn't really know the answer at the center of the business. We were going to have to go out and, and give our people the opportunity to to test their own ideas. And um, to be really honest with you, Michael, like that I've spent the last. Well, the, the the subsequent eight, nine years after that, making literally every mistake in the book and just happened to be in a position where I've been able to keep going and keep making mistakes. And and now, fortunately, uh, we, we do have a, a decent handle on how you do it, how you do it right. Uh, there was a sort of version one of the pioneers, which was very much a, a consultancy model. Uh, and we thought we had a way of changing ways of working where you could show you made people happier, made customers happier, made more money. And we thought, you know, who wouldn't want 
who wouldn't want to buy that? So we went after people with replicable scale. So uh, restaurant chains, hotel chains, retailers, that sort of thing. And the premise was, you know, from a business perspective, we could go in, take a, a cluster of business units, you know, about 10 restaurants maybe, demonstrate that we could have an impact. And then, you know, the plan was we'd make the money on, on scaling it. And won't surprise you, we weren't nearly as clever as we thought we were, um, which is to say we could change ways of working. We could show it made people happier. We could show it made customers happier. We could even show it made uh, a, an impact on, on sales. What we completely underestimated was the challenge of scaling it because what we were doing really was turning frontline service teams into a, a kind of a version of an agile software team, like give them the right to sh to ship their to develop their own hypothesis, to ship that, to test it, give them access to the data so they can try and judge for themselves whether it works. And um, in those situations, people really enjoy working in that in, in that context. But you can imagine, you know, for the bigger brands that have grown up around, uh, uh, you know, one of the assumptions behind those businesses is how you maintain consistency of the brand experience, how you maintain consistency around the customer journey. I just don't think they were comfortable with that level of frontline autonomy. Um, and so, um, you know, then we have Brexit and, and all those sorts of things that have been really tough time in the industry. And I think about 18 months ago, being my co-founder and I, we sat down and said, where did we actually where have we done our best work? Where have we enjoyed working? And it was always with organizations that were much newer and growing much, much quicker. Um, and where we were trying to put things in for the first time rather than trying to re-engineer things or transform things or try and move people away from a, a, a sunk cost in a particular way of working. So version two of the pioneers is very focused on scale-ups. People who, who want to create an environment for people who are putting that in for the first time because it's so much easier to get it right first time than to try and try and change things once you've once it's been established. Um, and what we do for those organisations is is build what we call the people operating system. What is the app? Because that's really interesting. Because you're working with scale ups, you're you're working with companies that's not maybe set in their way, especially around their mindset around their leadership thinking and. I think you are, uh, 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 you know, you are referring to, you know, top down the industrial way of thinking leadership that can be quite difficult to remove if your organization has worked on that maybe for four decades or more. It, and also, this is how most of us that is in leadership position today has been trained. So we have a lot of stuff we need to unlearn. Uh, been on the journey myself and still on the journey where, you know, when a crisis hits, you sometimes get comfortable and lean back in the old ways of command and control. So I know how hard this is. But what is it that you go in and do now? I think that's very interesting thing. You are now working both with the people part and the tech thing. And you're combining these two things to make a significant impact on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. So I would say... When when you're when you're a, a startup, like a genuine startup, you you don't you don't want process and structure too much process and structure around how you manage your people. It's it's it'll get in the way. It's likely to be redundant very very quickly, and, and it'll slow you down. Um, but as as an organization grows and you welcome more people into that organization, you create more social complexity. And there, if you're a founder, there comes a point where you just you just, you just can't stay on top of the number of relationships in your business. 
So whereas once upon a time, as a founder, you knew every, you, you, you know, you had a decent insight into what's going on in everyone's heads. You knew their past experience. You knew, knew what was going on in their life. You knew how motivated they were. You knew what their strengths were. And you could, you could manage that team and get the best out of them just using your personal influence. Once you get to about 100 people or beyond, there's just too many relationships for you to stay on top of. And so to grow through that transition point, you need to create some structures and some systems in order for people to work together effectively. Otherwise, you end up, it ends up becoming, becoming very chaotic and you end up burning people out. You have key individuals within the organization that become overwhelmed um, and you get, and, and unfortunately, you tend to burn out your best people um, because they're the ones you're most reliant on. So that's what we do is, is we help people build that structure and that system to enable them to, to grow through those, those transition points, if you like. What makes us a bit different is from a people perspective, I think most organizations tend to build that out in silos. So someone will come in and build recruitment, they'll build people ops, there'll be maybe some learning stuff, uh, there might be some stuff done in reward, and there'll be a whole host of communication stuff that probably no one really takes responsibility for, another load of stuff that sits in ops. Now, the challenge with that is for us, you, we always see the employee as the user of the system, right? So every organization provides stuff to its people to get work done whether that's like tools or processes, ways of working or goals, whatever it is, people, you have stuff you can use in order to ship product to customers. Now, there's a fundamental choice. Either you expect your employees to fit in and work for that system, or you expect that system to fit in and work for your employees. And we're very much in the latter camp, right? I think what, you, and if you see your employee as the user of the system, you need to understand that what matters for those users is does that system come together as a coherent experience or not? So is is it, or, or more often than not, if you build it out in silos, you get this very disjointed experience. And it can just be with timing, you know, like you don't get the data you need at the point at which you're making a decision, or you might get some, some training or some support on something, but it doesn't turn up at the right time, or it doesn't turn up at the right, in the right tone of voice or all these other things. So it's how you make this, feel like a coherent experience rather than a disjointed experience and if you start building in silos as a scale up it then gets more disaggregated as you grow and it's very difficult then to bring it back together so we like to try and work with organizations as soon as they they know they've got product market fit as soon as they know that they're going to grow through about 100 people you can start putting in place the structures that will help them do that in I mean, in as smooth a way as possible, right? Rapid growth is always a really challenging uh, uh, scenario. Um, but also we get the data consolidated from the outset so that it makes it easy to make evidence-based decisions as you grow. And it's very interesting from, from my own experience, um, and especially in the times we're in now, that my experience has always been when you scale a business, because I also got it totally wrong and scaled it. And as, exactly as you said, burned out my best people. And then I got into really trouble because I was scaling faster than I actually could actually develop and hire great people. Uh, and uh, that in the beginning, people was for me a bit like an activity that happens outside the operation. Then I got that into the operation and then I got tech involved as well. And this is about 10, 12 years. So some of the tech we had at that point was quite clunky, but you know, we build our own things with spreadsheets and so on. But again, I think the biggest frustration people had, and I think that's really important, was 
actually, yes, there was tools, but the tools was not good enough to help them at that point in time. They needed help. So therefore, they felt that, you know, you had failed as a leader to actually give them the tools to get a great piece of work done. And that hit engagement hugely as we scaled the business. Um, so, yeah, so I can totally, you know, in a way connect with that. But if you should say, what are the typical, you know, um, because what are typical traits you see from a successful organization that gets these two elements right? People, practices and tech. Yeah, well, look, just to just to sort of pick up on your last comment, I think one of the mistakes people make is they buy technology without appreciating how that fits with the culture they're cry- trying to create, how it fits with the people experience they're trying to create. And what are the underlying assumptions that sit behind that, that HR tech? So if I was being critical of some of the stuff on the market, there's a lot of HR tech at the moment that looks great. The user experience is 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 fine, but it is uh, if you like just modernizing some assumptions about how we how people worked in the nineties, right? It, it, there's still you know you talked about that that sort of those deep assumptions about uh, hierarchy, for instance, within an organization. Now, if you want to be a hierarchical organization, that's fine. You can buy into technology that 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 mirrors that assumption. But if you don't want to be hierarchical and you buy into technology that's got that hierarchy inbuilt, hard-coded into it, then you're bringing in a a systemic influence on your people's decision-making and behavior that they didn't want. And so I think, to your point, when you're looking at the people experience and the tech, you need smart buyers who really understand how does this piece of technology fit with the culture I want to create? Because otherwise you end up outsourcing the way in which you want to run your business to a so to a SaaS provider who's not who's not bothered about how you manage. Does that make sense? Their their model build it once, sell it at marginal cost. They don't want to really flex to to, to enable you to be different. And at, you know, at the top of the podcast, you talked about how do you create a culture that gives you a competitive advantage. And in my opinion, you you're not going to get a competitive advantage if you're if if the plumbing that 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 you know the systems that drive your organization are exactly the same as everyone else's there are you i think you need to be making some deliberate decisions in your tech stack about yeah we can afford you know for instance we don't think our payroll is going to give us a competitive advantage so it doesn't really matter where we, but there are other aspects of our tech stack where actually this is really important to the culture we want and we need to make some deliberate decisions either about what we buy that's on the market or what we choose to build ourselves. So I think it's that in terms of traits, I think it's that one. It's it's being able to appreciate how the design of your tech stack needs to work in the, with the culture you're trying to create. And then I think the other things are the, the people that I see that do a great job is people who genuinely care. Like I think, you know, one of the the organizations that we really enjoy working with are the ones that really care about their people. I think there are, you know, founders who feel kind of a moral responsibility for the the quality of the jobs that they create for people. And there are found there are other founders who don't. And 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 that's not meant as a that's not necessarily a judgment, but that the it the the ones that care obviously do the hard work and stay with it for, for long enough in order to 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 create that and, and to bring that to life. Um, and then the other thing is whether you've got the, the, the courage to, to be different. 
you know it's quite when you particularly in a scale up and particularly for first time founders in a scale up if you're if you're going through this the first time it's quite easy to buy into what you see other people doing and by doing so if the premise of your scale up is to be disruptive you can lose that disruptive edge and just by what people in your in your space seem to be buying without as i said that that clarity about where we need to be different and why we need to be different and it's very interesting uh, you talk about culture as a competitive edge but is that really the competitive edge of the future that's been you know there's lots of people talking about it you know you'll probably see any ceo even if he cares and or she doesn't care about the people they will stand up and say culture is our competitive advance but is it really the competitive advance when you work with people and you find you meet these founders you can really see they are striving on this you can really see that impacts their business results yeah i i'm always skeptical of like this tendency everyone wants a silver bullet for everything you know like there's one thing you can get right and you can ignore everything else in a scale up you can't do that right if you mess up your sales and marketing it doesn't matter how great your culture is it's it's, it's not going to pull you through if you can't attract the investment or you don't get your tech strategy right you know so it's is it i don't think it's any more or less important than all the other components that you need to pull together the thing about culture though is a lot of what makes great cultures is is bound up in in tacit knowledge you know stuff that's quite hard to codify quite hard to formalize and consequently it's quite hard to to lift and copy that stuff so i think if you do create a culture that's that's different and that works for your organization and you know how it works for your organization you have that sense of um agency and that sense of insight around it I think it can give you a, a competitive advantage that that is sustainable. Does that make sense? It's 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 the type of thing that new entrants or bigger organizations would find more difficult to copy. Whereas there are other elements of your business which are equally important to your short term success, but where the where perhaps the advantage is uh, there's less longevity on the advantage. It's less sustainable because it's easier for other people to copy. Are you also saying then that the building great culture is harder? You know, like you're getting it really right, really takes some effort. Yeah, there's people on my team who are like now sort of turning in their grave in terms of, because culture is an emerging, emergent quality, right? So you can't you can't create it, you can't build it. It, it I think I I I tend to when I'm talking to to clients, I talk about four influences on their culture in a scale up. The first is the the assumptions the personality the behavior of your leaders and your founders and particularly when you're small startups tend to have this like family dynamic you know in the same way your kids tend to pick up on your values um and your 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 way of going about things so that's that's that happens in startups as well the second influence is events right you, things happen you respond to it uh, if it works you tend to stick with it the more it works the more ingrained it becomes in your culture um, the third thing is what we talk about meta cultures. So things that cultural norms that apply across companies or industries. Now, hospitality, for instance, has a, a quite strong meta culture about how you would run a restaurant business. You know, no one opened their third restaurant and thought, do you know what? I think we should try having a self-managing team here. No, everyone hires a restaurant manager. You get to eight to 10 restaurants, everyone hires an area manager. You know, there's a and, and you do that stuff without really thinking about it or considering it because it's it's a it's such a deep assumption that sits within within the industry. 
that's fine. The, the challenge is if you want to be disruptive, meta cultures can be can really hold you back if you if you want to be disruptive. And then the fourth thing is is the system or situational influences on on people's behavior. And I'm personally a bit of an amateur social psychologist. I, I I'm pretty uh, convinced that we tend to underestimate the situational or contextual influences on people's behavior. Um, and the context in which people work tends to be a pretty decent predictor of how people will make decisions and how they'll behave. And, and that's where we see this people operating system as, as, as interesting, because that's actually, if you're a company, that's the piece of the jigsaw that you have, you can be most deliberate around, you know, you can design your ways of working, you can design the environment in which you, you ask people to work. Um, and doing that in a way that, that, nudges the particular culture you're looking to create is I think important but but culture for me is is shared learning right you uh, you, you need to work out how do we behave so that we can work together as effectively a team so we can engage successfully as the outside world you what you're trying to do is is influence that learning but you can't control it right because it sits in the heads of everyone that works for you it's kind of it's got this wonderful distributed quality and so the reason people on my team will get angsty is because if you talk about it in a determinist or a mechanistic way you tend to get you tend to go down the wrong path in terms of how you approach creating a great culture it um it's i think i think we try and have more more organic metaphors if that makes sense how are you how the one the one that like it's a bit like gardening yeah you can't make a tree grow to a certain shape but you can create the conditions that would help the tree to try and grow to the shape you want it to be Um, and I think that's that's the best way to try and think about culture and it's different it's different to how you might approach other aspects of your business which I think is something that some some founders and leaders find tricky you know it's not you need a different uh, a, a different mindset, a different set of mental tools and frameworks in order to make sense of that than than when you're looking at your finances, for instance. Yeah, and I see that what I've learned is is like bit like experimented. You can get inspired for what others have done. It's not the silver bullet, and then you can try out your version of that. You know, and then you find out either it worked and it didn't work. It didn't create the, the stories that you wanted to scale because culture in my world is scaling stories. You know, and making sure that these stories actually impacts the decisions you want to make to to live out your vision. So I, I totally agree with you. And I see it over the years. I actually believed in a young age that I can go and build culture. And then I found out I can only influence it. I, and I can, I, can, I can look at it as an emerging thing. It's this ecosystem of things going on. And I can try to put things in place to actually, you know, as you cultivate better better soil so it grows in, in, in the right way. And, that, and your point about experimentation is so important. Like, people teams still don't run enough experiments, right? Even in organizations, you go walk into, you know, uh, a scale up where that mentality of ship and test and learn is, is it absolutely integral to their business model? And they're still got people teams who are like, who have like this, this is best practice. This will fix it. We'll do this. Then we move on. And yeah, it just, you, you the, as you say, if you see culture as a way, as learning, you have to experiment because you have to create the vessel for people to learn within the organization. You can't shortcut that. One of the things you said as well was quite interesting. I, I wanted to, to, to just hear your view on as well. We You said that some cultures or organization, they will thrive with top-down 
heretical. They would never ever really function if you gave freedom to operate, autonomy out the front line. And then there's others where they build on that. And if you put the the other angle of the, the Christmas tree leadership top down in there, you will kill that organization. Is that also accepting there's different types of organization because there's different types of leaders and would one of them be more successful in the future than others? What do you think? I think there is a general trend. So as the world becomes more complex, as as things change more quickly and unpredictably, the as a general rule, I would say, yeah, organizations need to become more agile. They need to be they need to have greater situational awareness. They need to be able to respond quickly um, to adapt to changes in the environment. And that tends to look like a more networked organization than, as you said, like a Christmas tree organization. The premise of a Christmas tree organization is basically you can have someone at the top who's really, really clever, who can tell thousands of people what to do. And the context won't change very much because you can predict in January what people ought to be doing in October. Now, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's a sensible model for most organizations moving forward. Um, I, what's interesting for us is, is it is a model that's quite, quite baked into how people grow hospitality businesses, for instance. You know, like most hospitality businesses continue to have this sort of pyramid mindset of um top down and and what's been i think interesting particularly through through covid is how challenging it is to run that type of organization when the context changes and keeps changing and it's very unpredictable um and my i'm not i i'm always i'm always skeptical of people who like try and predict the future but i i don't think the uncertainty is going to go away there'll be another source of uncertainty because the the degree of interconnectedness now means that small things blow up. You know, they get that butterfly effect of small things become big things really, really instantly. So I think organizations should be should, should really think about how it is that they're structuring their business, what the strengths of that are, and, and also what the risks of that are. Um, a couple of things you also mentioned, uh, which is quite interesting. You talk about this operating system that supports your business, how you get things done in principle, I call as well. And you talk about how important is technology is connected with that to actually get the get the outputs you want, both from a culture, but also from a business point of view. And uh, we've just been through a phase in hospitality where we implemented a lot of technology, but we maybe haven't changed the way we work. What do you think the, the consequences are when you're putting all these new operating systems in and we're not really changing the way we work and predict the future, as you say, like, you know, we, we still believe we can see what's going to happen in, in 10 months down the line. You get that cynic. I think you sort of mentioned it before, you know, your own experience when the technology doesn't quite match up to you, to your hopes for it. You get a cynicism within the business because people, particularly if you're doing this sort of top down approach to technology where you're where you're making reasonably big bets like i'm going to buy into a platform for a period of two years or three years or whatever it might be because as soon as you've done that it's very difficult politically to say do you know what that was a mistake scrap that go back to start and we'll we'll do something different and so you get this unhealthy tension within an organization i see this all the time where people teams don't really want the feedback 
right? Because the feedback is only going to tell them that they made the wrong choice and that they succeed. So I and and I think that's dangerous when you because you get this this then you've got people within the organization working at cross purposes with with each other. What we've so um as you know what some of our, our our work over the last sort of 12 18 months has been with honest burgers. What what we've tried to do there is I I try, I think of our tech solution as kind of a bit like Lego, right? So the the first thing you do is is we we went through a process with the leadership team at Honest of trying to understand what's the journey that they want to go on, what's the culture they want to go on. And one a couple of key things stood out. First they saw themselves as a craft business, right? Which is the premise of that was you can't take decision-making away from the craftsman, right? And there's a craft in how you cook the burger and how actually how you put your personal mark on that and take the pride in making that. But there's also a craft around the service in Honest, how you recognize what's appropriate to a customer and respond to that and, and so on. Now, grounding their purpose in that sense of craft was really important because what it meant is you, you come back to your christmas tree you can't tell a craftsman what to do the craftsman is the problem solver so what you have to do is then create the 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 context and the system that enables that person to take a better decision so we 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 went through this process with honestly trying to understand as i say the the, the the their their brand their value proposition and how their culture fitted with that then this is where it gets like lego then we basically put in you know the lego base plate you know the thing that you build on them all the bricks plug into that for us is is a is is a database and that's what that gives you is one point of truth on your people and and their decision making and behavior so you you know come back to the classic mistake of people building out in silos what happens is if you do that you end up with all your data sat in those silos you've got some data in an ats you've got some on an hris you've got some in an ms you've got maybe some interesting stuff in slack that you don't really pull on you know it, you've got some stuff in spreadsheets and so on and so forth if you want to take an evidence if you want to experiment in that context and take evidence based decision making it becomes really difficult because every time you need a data scientist to come in and clean up those those data sources so what we do is we put everyone on one database so everything feeds into one structured database so that you can you can look back and say how did that correlate with that how, you know how how are people actually behaving and then what we build what we do is basically we build lego bricks and a lego brick for us is like a module within the system that does, that serves a particular user need so it might be everything from how you automate the the onboarding process you know how do you send an employment contract to someone when they fill that in they get automatically put onto payroll maybe it automatically orders their uniform it might set up their you know who they're going to meet their all those sorts of things so so it's the if you like the product side of people now the 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 premise of that is if we keep the uh, the data exchange between the lego bricks consistent you know if you keep the nodules consistent the bricks themselves can do different things they can look different but because the data flow is the consistent they all plug back into that base plate and so one brick can fire another so you can start to, to take learning for example you can get to a place where for me in the learning space people over index on content and they don't appreciate context right so classic example in a let's say we've got a challenge with um one to one conversations right we we think that that's going to improve our business what most restaurant businesses would do is let's get all our managers in and give them some training on one to one conversations now the problem with that is if that manager doesn't go and use those that that learning within quite a short period of time let's say a week after that workshop 
the, their retention of it is going to be quite low. Equally, if they don't walk into that session with a live problem in their minds that they've that they've been trying to work on and it hasn't worked properly, they've got less applied examples that they can they can, if you like, simulate that learning with at that point in time. So actually, the transfer of learning, however good the content is, the transfer of learning is is inefficient. It's much better if you can say, say we have a brick that's looking at manager feedback, and you know, Jenny, our manager, gets some feedback saying she's that her team don't don't think she's doing a great job of one-to-ones. It's at that point that you want a brick that triggers the bot to say, Jenny, we thought you might find this interesting. Here's some, you know, here's some content on one-to-ones. And then you can tra- track whether Jenny interacts with that and, then, and in turn, if that appears to have any influence on her performance. And because you're building it in modules, you can swap those modules in and out. So to your point about testing and learning, if that, if that learning doesn't have the effect that you want on, on Jenny and, and the system, you test something different or you deliberately set it up with an A-B test. And that's how you can create a system that I think is, is really going to drive the performance of your organization because over time you're going to learn more, it's going to get better and better and better. And it's translating those cult- cultural aspirations that you had when we talked about, you know, we talked about the story into actually here's how it shows up on a day-to-day basis in the people experience. Uh, one of the things I picked up from and just said there as well, where um, I can remember I had a transition in my past where I went from, you know, very, I, I, I knew what to do, my God, in a way, to actually looking at the data, exactly that and say, okay, what data do we have to make better decisions? Because I read a book called Good to Great. And these companies, the leaders made decisions on data, not emotion. Uh, not because they were not emo- emotional people and they couldn't care and they could be uh, emotional intelligent because they know if they made a decision that was not based on data, they will make the wrong decision for the company and its people. Um, and I went down that route and I can remember that actually if you don't have the data, you need to go and find it and or you need to create the foundation actually to have that data at that time. It was very interesting to talk about that, especially when it comes to people. We often want to feel, I have a gut feel that they all need one-to-one. And then you go, as you say, scale out everyone. And the, the maybe the 50 managers out of 100 is really good at one-to-one. So why am I participating in this? You know, I've been in these programs myself. Why am I learning about this? That's not my challenge. I want to learn about how to create revenue. I want to be better at uh, having, uh, you know, uh, a group conversation or presentation skills, you know. And it's, again, that also see that employee as a customer and understand what the, the needs are based on data. And I think it's super interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to say that, so what you're saying as well is that tech is going to play a huge role in successful organizations going forward, but not just tech you buy, but actually tech that really drives that culture and vision you have for the business. Yeah. So, so come back to the point you just made about one-to-ones. I think the other thing for me in that is most organizations still have a one-size-fits-all approach to people, right? Everyone gets the same training. Everyone gets put through the same processes. But come back to one-to-ones. It's, it, for me, it's a decent hypothesis that different people within your organizations would pr- appreciate a different frequency or cadence on those one-to-one conversations, right? If I've just started, I might want really quite regular conversations. I'm going to get a lot of value for that. That might decrease over time. Or there might be a way in which we approach those conversations that that delivers more value to a particular user than another. Now, you can't support that level of personalization and flexibility unless you've got good tech, 
right? You just, you, you can't, you, you, there's no, but what there is now is the ability to automate those user journeys and to build in those, those personalizations. So you can start to really genuinely respond to the different needs of the different people that, that work for you. And we're utilizing, I think that over the last 18 months or so, there's a, a lot of new interesting commodity type technology in the like no code space, low code space, where you can you can build product really, really quickly. And and I think one of the things I'm proudest about with Honest is Honest has built the bulk of its own people operating system. Like we we help with the architecture, we put some of the things in place, but it's actually people within restaurants, people within the people team who are building bricks for that organization. And that ability to shape your own working environment and to make it work for you and to generate the data around that and once the organization has identified something that's working to be able to to leverage that across the organization that for me is just a really exciting way about about how you can approach the problem you know if you contrast that with if i'm really not now typically you're a smaller people team who spend most of the time like worried that they don't know the answer and and instead if instead you can get to a place where your people have the ability to design their own processes, their own ways of working, to generate data around what's working, what isn't working. And your role as a people team then is to encourage that experimentation, to create a great architecture so people have the data to to work out what's working and what isn't, and to then identify the hotspots and share those learning within the organization. In my opinion, that's how you get to a really special culture. Otherwise, you're taking on way too much on yourself as a people team to try and fix. It's super interesting what you're saying there. And also I want to lead the conversation with that in mind, lead it back to you said when you started working with Honest, it was like, you sounded like you said, we did, you did a health check on the, the purpose, the vision, the values, the belief that drives Honest Burger. And you came to this, uh, they're, they're craftsmen, you know, the people who work in the front line. Do you think that, you know, um, you know, the most successful organization after the pandemic really had spent some time here? looking into this because i saw a, a, another case study the other day from danny Meyer in a union square hospitality shake shack actually and that's what he spent his time on in the pandemic going back looking at that you know what is the purpose what is the vision what values drive our business forward and how can we implement that in a new in a new way if you can have the confidence and clarity about what your purpose is where you are now the problems you need to fix where you want to position yourself in the market, like what's your what's your value proposition? How are you trying to stand out? Um, what what are the if you like the strategic principles that are informing where you want to play and don't play, and how your culture fits into that? It's that clarity that makes it really e- easy for people to collaborate. And I, what I really admire about Honest is. When we had a, I mean, if you, if anyone knows the lead team at Honest, you know that they 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 they're very open, very challenging of each other, and and so if we had the, a series of conversations, um, but it's the courage of the convictions. You know, Phil, one one of the founders, talks about you know building an anti-chain organization. So, you know, if you're if the premise is our people in our restaurants are craftspeople, we need to give them the autonomy to decide what's the right thing to do, to do for the customer in front of them. Now, if you look at most restaurant businesses as they grow, the, 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 the result of that growth and the, 
you know, the Christmas tree effect that you talked about is you, you take more and more decision making away from the restaurant team and you try and centralize that in order to give yourself, in my opinion, the illusion of control, but, but this sense that you can control the outputs in your restaurants. Once you've decided as honest that, that, that you want the autonomy to sit in a restaurant, then you can be really radical about what you design behind the scenes in order to help that. And, and that's where I think it's having that confidence to be different. You know, it's having that confidence to say, yeah, if this is like, if what we think is really important is that people, people who make our burgers feel proud of what they're making, right? They're not, they don't feel like they're compromised. It's a craftsman. You know, like if I, if I made a table or something, I'm proud of that table. That's how they want people to feel about the burger. Okay, how do we create the, the situation around that? And similarly for the service, like how do I feel proud about recognizing what a particular customer needs and then thinking through how I can respond to that and give that to them. And that could be really paired back service. You know, this, this customer doesn't want, you know, me all over them or, or doesn't want that. Or it might be actually this customer really does want to chat. Yeah. And it's being able to read and respond to that. Um, uh, and, and I think they're onto something in this. Like, I think there's, there is this, this appetite for particularly in hospitality, like that, that humanity at the front line of a business that I think most chain organizations really struggle with to do consistently at scale. And for me, the reason they struggle is because they build a system behind the scenes that work, that drags that away from people. It, st- it inhibits them and, it, and people turn up to work thinking they don't have that scope. So they don't, they don't try to use it. Yeah, and that's uh, that's super interesting because I guess also that changes the way you, as a business, think about growth. Because in the, the top-down uh, paradigm, and you know, you can call it uh, the self-managed paradigm. If you take two extremes, there's two different approaches to growth and how you you see it. In a way, growth happens in the front line, in the autonomy and top-down. It's decided we're going to open so many restaurants and we're going to do it this way. This is the algorithm. Let's go and do it. And you just have to follow the algorithm. Then everything's going to be all right. And we've seen that was not the case, you know, even before pandemic. Um, but how how do they approach growth? The, the the companies of the future. How do they see? Because you know we still need to grow businesses that make money you know, to, to pay our bills and, you know, create, you know, a better world. We still need money for that. We can't just say that it just has to be, it just has to be fun. As you said, we need to, 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 to build a commercial viable business. Well, there's, I think there's a really dangerous assumption within hospitality businesses that actually people on the front line of those organizations aren't interested in growing them. They're not interested in making money. And I don't think that's true. I I think, I, I think, you know, I go back to some of the early work we we did, how motivated teams were by trying to test stuff that would grow in the right way. If you if you can help a team grow in a way that makes them happy, makes customers happy and makes them more money, uh, then I th- people people like that. You know, I actually people uh, and and it's a really dangerous assumption. I think that you want to protect your front line from the commercial reality of your organization. I think in the future, it's more, how do you create that? Have you cut, have you read the team of team books a guy called uh, Stanley McChrystal? No, I have it on my list. I, I read another one that is called uh, the great game of business, but I guess you, you're on the way to save down, down the same line. His thing, the... He was the guy that ran uh, us operations in Iraq. 
And it, the story is the classic story of turning up with a pyramid-shaped organization, one of the most efficient, orderly efficient, and it, and putting it into a context of essentially chaos when you know with Al Qaeda and all those sorts of things, and it not being uh, quick enough and agile enough to respond to the context in which he was operating in. And he talks about some of the changes they had to make. One of the things he talks about is this idea of shared consciousness. So this idea that you want an organization that has, in my opinion, a shared narrative, this, this same way of making sense of the world, an organization where everyone knows why you're there, who you are, what you're trying to fix, where you want to get to. Um, and in terms of the commercial success of an organization, I actually think in a hospitality, there's a missed opportunity around that that shared consciousness around how you what makes a commercial difference to our business you know most hospitality organizations that i've come across don't look to develop their people and their commercial understanding they don't they don't you know if you ask people what are the what are the key levers of profit they probably wouldn't be able to to give you an accurate answer most restaurant teams probably don't understand the operating margins they're working at you know, so and if you don't understand that stuff, if you don't know the value of a customer within you, you know, don't know the lifetime value of a customer or the average spend of a customer, if you don't know those sorts of things, how can you possibly make good commercial decisions? And what I've seen as well is that people often think that we are making a lot of money. And then when you start what is called open book management, which I tried to practice a couple of organizations, start to involve them in the commercials and actually learn them not just to tell them well, how your your labor costs are but actually understanding how what leads to good labor cost and and so it's actually not cutting the hours it's the opposite you know it's making sure that work works that leads to great labor cost uh, uh, you actually start to see these things that these people get very you know competitive because of course they want to be in the winning team nobody likes to be in the the losing team in life you know and then if you find out how the game is played the great game of business as it's called um then then you you start to see some results where you know even as a leader you didn't come up with the idea you didn't even start that experiment but suddenly they found out you know maybe reducing openings hours without your knowledge have actually increased you know profit uh, because uh, they found out there's only two customers coming in those last hours and let's just do an experiment and they come and tell you afterwards we did this experience my experiment michael should we is it okay that in the future we close you know at eight instead of nine yeah totally totally is because you've proven there's profit but you have to learn them the basic skills as you said and how the commercial works in your business and i agree with you i, I don't see that enough yeah and you need the data that's the other thing. Most organizations don't have the data architecture to be able to give that information to their teams in a way they could use. What we're talking about here is also get, you know, what I call transferable skills uh, or, or train people in becoming good at what actually is demanding in many jobs. Uh, you know, if you move around between different sectors and more, you know, more transferable skills give you people, the, the, in my assumption, the bigger is the chance they stay. Because they think, what I get here, I'm not going to get in many other places. And that's my own story as well. The reason why I did, stayed 11 years for McDonald's was exactly because of the transferable skills I got. It was not about being part of McDonald's. Of course, I had good mentors as well. That's part of it. Good mentors and transferable skills. Um, but how do you think you know this way of operating and thinking, learning and people system and operating culture, all the things we talked about, is actually a reflection on the current staffing crisis that is here? Because, of course, some of it is impacted by external factors, but we could see it. Uh, I think uh, Marco Reich talks about uh, 
uh, as well in the podcast that he said there was a gray rhino standing in the middle of the road. We all could see it. And we knew it was coming in some kind of format, but we didn't really adapt to it. Do you think some of all the things we talked about really is a reflection on the seriousness of lack of workforce right now in hospitality? Yeah, so I'm not really an industry insider. So because we work with with scale ups across all sorts of spaces. Um, and on the one hand, what that perspective. So if I compare the uh, the situation in hospitality right now to the what it's like to try and hire a developer in in London, I mean, it's not it's not a different dynamic. Does that like there are it's just that suddenly hospitality's crashed into a very competitive talent pool for the, for, for, you know, um, I just it when it gets competitive. You you know and the t- like and the the tide of supply goes out. You see who hasn't who's been swimming with no pants on, and and unfortunately, there are hospitality organisations that I think probably have in, underinvested in their people experience and their culture, um, and that's not a quick and easy problem to fix. You know you can't just turn on a dime and and, and sort that out. Um, I think it's to be honest, I think it's good for the industry. I think it's. I think the 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 competitiveness for talent will favor people who are doing really great things for their people. And in order to, to your point to to grow that successfully, you have to be able to translate that into commercial success as well. And the organisations that that do that well, in my opinion, deserve to grow. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't. I it's as you say, it's not it's not a desperate surprise, you know. Like I don't think, and and, and equally. I think people are kidding themselves as they they've got short term fixes to some of these long term problems that sit within within their organisations. It, it, in my view, it's a great time to be a scale up in the space because if you can get it right, you can take you can take market share. So, so we just gone through uh, Matt uh, a crazy time. We we touched on we're still in it in some kind of way, but you know the last eighteen months we all we all learned something uh, as a, as an individual. What has been like your you know personal learning in all this? Now we talked about organizations. What has been your personal learning in all this? Uh, my per- it's been a re- for the pioneers. It's been a really interesting eighteen months, right? Because we've gone from being a consultancy proposition to. I think of us now like a digital agency, you know, we're building people tech for people. Um, and that's quite a, tra- you know, that's quite a big shift. And in that time, our team's grown. Um, and it's, it's frankly, it's been weird working with people for, in some cases, for months without actually ever meeting them in person and and those sorts of things. I think my personal learning is it's been difficult to, to find the space for the moments of humanity and joy and and i like i see lots of stuff on remote working as an instance you know everyone's going remote all those sorts of things and i know there are remote organizations that work amazingly well you know uh which which create a great place but i think there are also organizations where that ability to come together and 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 be with each other and enjoy people's company is really important. And I think, you know, I put the pioneers in, in that, like one of the things that I love about our organization is spe- like, we have some amazing like experts and stuff and just some fantastic brains. And we've got some people with fantastic energy and like, you just, you miss, I miss that 
when you're just doing everything through a, a Zoom call or via Slack or or those sorts of things. And and the and the the lesson for me is it like I think it comes, you know, we had that conversation at the start about the purpose. Like I think there is something, there's a human need for work, or at least like I'm I'm like I feel that personally. Like I, I enjoy working. I like I'd feel really odd if I if I wasn't working. I'd get on everyone's nerves. But there's a there's a humanity to that that I find difficult to articulate, but for me, like really energizes me. And I'm I'm a massive introvert. Like my team wind me up about it. like I just like to stay in a cupboard. But even for me, they I really miss the uh, the the personal connections and those the, just those moments where conversations spark and and that sort of thing. And and I think for us as an organization hopefully uh, and, and also perhaps for, for clients who have a similar mindset so how do you give yourself that space where you are you know chatting and exploring stuff and not deliberately task orientated and in just giving yourself permission to enjoy each other's company for a bit and and those sorts of things which are you know can get driven out when things get busy and 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 particularly when you're disconnected from each other yeah, I, I really like that uh, because I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine and we talked about this, how we avoid ourselves and the people who work where to go into this elite soldier that's focusing on the task and uh, getting the mission done and actually having explorative conversations sometimes with at the coffee machine or in the cafe, we are meeting on the way to prepare for a meeting, all those things we have lost a bit and for our productivity recent almost has been so focusing on on the elite soldier that i can do it in faster time um for less cost and all those things so yeah i, I can totally follow where we're going and it's such an interesting reflection how do we actually bring that into the future of work how do we actually maintain that coffee machine conversation uh, as i call it as well uh, because that's where sometimes the big problems are solved within five minutes that's people have walked around because you don't do it on a zoom you don't go to a zoom and say now we're gonna have a chat you know and it's it's the i agree with you i think it's also the emotional experience of it it's slightly less joyful for me doing doing things when you feel that disconnect with people and there's and it's slightly less connected like but but that's in in the sense of not not in terms of the transfer of information it's it's the connectedness of like um appreciating someone as a person you know that that, that i think um that yeah that's important to the type of organization we want to be at the pioneers and and so yeah i think the last 18 months have been crazy busy for us um and and i've missed that uh missed that just those the, those times where you just be with people rather than do stuff with people. I love that reflection, Matt. So on your journey, uh, we have a couple more questions to go through, but on your journey, who are the, you know, to go and build the pioneers, do the work you do, I guess there's some people that has really influenced you. And who are those, you know, you know, there's probably more than three. There's always more than three we meet on our journeys in life, but like who are the most impactful and most influential to you? I love this question. Um, and I'm going to avoid saying like some of the obvious things, like my my parents and you know all those sorts of things. That 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 probably the most profound influence on me um, and the way in which I think I I when I was at school I had a philosophy teacher called Mark Rock, and Rocky was just 
he was just an out, an ex, just an outstanding teacher. He he was he was very funny. Uh, used to do these great impressions of people, um, but he also he also had this worldview that that and I find myself doing stuff now and 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 I think I've come up with something new and interesting and novel and then I sit back and say no this is just what Rocky taught me like literally 20 years ago so you know all this stuff about narrative stuff around complexity and not reducing things to simple answers uh in the and 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 the contextual relevance and stuff all of that really if I'm honest stems from from this exposure to one amazing teacher. Um, so, so, I mean, yeah, that he's is such a profound influence on how I see stuff. Um, the other thing I was thinking, there's the other, I, when I was younger, I used to play a bit of rugby um, and I was very lucky to get the chance. I trained for a couple of years with a, with a, a, a sprinter called Jason Gardner. Jason won the gold medal in the sprint relay at Athens Olympics. Um, and, uh, I, I trained with him for a couple of years, like I was trying to get faster and, and he, uh, and you, it was the being around him, like training in some really, like really sh- awful facilities, like, you know, in the, in, uh, and, and that sort of thing, but that it's the, the grit that, that someone like that has, you know, like I remember uh, being at a, a weightlifting session with Jason. It was just me and him in this freezing cold, old gym somewhere. And Jason used to be probably about 70 kilos body weight. And he used to lift about 145, 150 kilos, right? So twice his body weight. Uh, insane, just insane. Uh, and and he, at the time, he had a stress fracture in his wrist. Um, and he just strapped it up and he just got on with it. He didn't moan. He didn't, he didn't, you know. And there are times when you're the founder of a growing business, like it's just, it's, it's, there's the dark bits, you know, when things aren't going right and you're worried about stuff and, and that sort of thing. And I think being around someone like that growing up and just seeing like you, you just, you just keep going. You just keep, you know, you just, you, you that, that's, that's probably those sorts of experience probably be quite influential. And then for the pioneers, uh, actually uh, there's a, 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 uh, someone called Jonathan Crookle, who's now the people director at Costa. We, we did some work for him when he was at Halfords. It was actually our biggest failure in, in the consultancy days. Um, they were interested in how they improve customer service. Um, and we went in with our methodology. We, we worked with some store teams. We gave them the license to experiment. And what we found was um, they could make improvements, but they couldn't sustain them for more than a few days. And it really, uh, Jonathan was, if you're, when you're setting up a business, we, if you luck out, you get a client like Jonathan who really understands more about what you're trying to do than you do uh, and can see, see the hidden value in it and gives you that, that uh, takes a bit of a chance on you and not only takes a bit of a chance on be re- he was incredibly helpful in terms of trying to help maximize the amount of learning that we could take out of that experience. Um, and the, it, we came, our insight on the back of that project was the reason that we were struggling to sustain the changes was we try to see behavior as a point in tension, right? Between things that would make it more likely to behave in a certain way and things that are holding you back. Now, what was happening within that business is they were trying to increase the pull factors, right? So they communicated how important customer service was. They trained people, they've incentivized it, all those sorts of things. But the problem actually, the reason they couldn't sustain those improvements is because 
the underlying operation of the business was was too complex like orders were turning up late there was too many forms to fill in all those sorts of things and so ironically every time you tried to put in a new pull factor you actually made the situation worse so imagine you train people on customer service and you've got a store team of 10 that means you know you, you're down at 90 percent capacity as everyone goes off to train and and so the stock clogs up at the back and things get worse so at least for a short period of time customer service gets worse um and it was the experience with Halfords that really got us into this mindset of how structure drives behavior, how systems drive behavior. Um, and that's like, if that was, that was the turning point, like, and that was a lot of personal learning and exploration, try and understand how, how systems work, how feedback loops work, how you manage these sorts of tensions and that sort of thing, which is where we've ended that that's what's got us to the point where we are today. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that that was a pretty pivotal moment in terms of what we were and, and taking us from, you know, that naivety that that I thought sort of shared it, where we started to uh, a, a much more considered, insightful um, perspective on how you go about actually doing this in practice. Uh, super interesting uh, learnings and people you you work down and uh, as you say when you're in a in a scale up business a new business you need those people to give you a chance like Jonathan. Is there any advice you want to leave people with out there, Matt? Today, you know, leaders like maybe your top three advice to leaders right now to accelerate their businesses because I think everybody is running around with a flashlight looking into the black box, thinking what should I do to to improve my business right now. Uh, the first one is sometimes you need to slow down to go faster and finding the time to have that conversation about your narrative and the journey you want to go on and the organization you actually want to be and getting that sense of alignment and shared ownership makes it so much easier than to disperse decision making and for people to, 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 to get on with stuff. And, um, there's a concept in social psychology called naive realism, which is the idea that we all think we see the world as it is and we miss our subjective filter on it. As a result of that, we tend to think that basically everyone sees this, sees it the same way we do. And particularly on leadership teams, you get this dynamic where you they think they agree, but actually they're using jargon to mask the fact that there's underlying misalignment. And if you want to go fast, that clarity of, of purpose and that clarity of what are the problems we need to focus on and what do we need to solve and what can we afford to ignore is, is, is so important. Because otherwise, the faster you go, the more chaotic and the more disjointed it becomes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is data. You know, you mentioned it, you know, the, you, you can't, there's no best practice on how you create the culture that you want in your organization there's nothing you can buy off the shelf that's going to get you there what you need is to create the system that helps you to learn as quickly as possible and for me that that has to be grounded on data have you got reliable data on your people experience on their behavior on their decision making and if you don't you can't learn quickly enough you just can't learn quick it just becomes too difficult to make evidence-based decisions um, and then the final thing, which speaks to the way in which we sit, is the modularity. Like, I think build, try and build smaller, you know, solve particular user journeys or particular touch points on those journeys, optimize those and build those in a way that you can scale off of rather than 
over investing in platforms or training courses or does that make like you no one organizations are complex systems no one can tell you how any particular intervention is going to what the effect of that in an organization is going to be so in my opinion particularly in a scale-up space where the level of uncertainty is high you need to you need to de-risk the bets build small stuff build small stuff that it's fine if it doesn't work because you can swap it out and replace it really quickly um i think if you try and solve your challenges in too bigger chunks you you are you you create the risk that you're going to strap yourself into something that becomes a straitjacket that was some really really great advice there and actually you know connects really well to to the the conversation we had uh, all the way through if people want to know more matt if they want to you know have a conversation with you reach out follow you guys what you're doing where's the best place to to go uh so we have a website we're on linkedin and twitter and all those sorts of things the website is thepioneers.co.uk um i guess one the one thing that i'd love to mention is one of the premises of building things with modularity and building with bricks is that we can lift them between systems and one of the things we're looking at next year is could we find a cohort of hospitality businesses that would be interested in collaborating to build out their their people operating system. So, you know, company A might focus on recruitment, company B might focus on learning experiences, so on and so forth. And then by sharing their learning, if we if we build a brick that's useful to one, we can then lift it to another. So if 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 like if I haven't bored people to death already, but uh, at this point, and you're an organisation that's like, okay, I, I'm actually interested in doing doing this for real. Um, and you're you're of that mindset where you'd be quite happy to collaborate, not with direct competitors. We don't have any, but you, the, there are in hospitality. If you are growing quickly, you're likely to have a degree of overlap in your people challenges with with other people. So if we can bring people together, we think we can pool the resources, if you like, so everyone can learn quicker and everyone can benefit from that learning. So if, in particular, if that's of interest um, uh, for something you might want to do next year please get in touch because we 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 really want to work with organizations that that want to be pioneers that want to do something different that want to 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 create um something that's great for their people but also great for their business um so yeah i'd, I'd love to talk to anyone who, who who's interested in that sort of stuff yeah that, that's a great shout out there because we need to help each other solve the the challenges and problems we have as an industry so yeah also feel free to reach out to myself and i'll put you in contact with math if there's anyone there's there's interest in that because that's a that's a great opportunity to really start looking differently on the infrastructure and uh, operating system of your of your business. Thank you so much, Matt, for for coming on. I'm sending you and the team uh, at the Pioneers all the the power and energy you need in uh, in in the months to come. Probably a lot of uh, interesting challenges ahead and also a lot of fun. So and again, thank you for for taking time to share your wisdom and insights. I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. Thank you so much, Matt, for your great insights into how culture underpinned with great technology can give you a competitive edge. And I would recommend you now to ask yourself, is my culture and tech stack really giving me the competitive edge I need to thrive and survive in the current market? To get further inspiration on how to improve your business by rethinking culture, tune in to episode number 80 with Henry Stewart, Chief Happiness Officer at Happy on Freedom and Trust. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. 
Check them out at bisimply.com or on their social at bisimply or bisimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bisimply.com. Also remember to download your free copy of the white paper from Fragile to Agile we did in cooperation with Bisimply. You can find it at bisimply.com on the resource tab or via the link in the show notes. We have some great insights and solutions for improving your leadership game. A big thank you to Fina Charlton, the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the newsletter at hospitalitymavericks.com. Don't worry if you didn't get all of this. There will be links in the show notes. I wish you and your loved ones a happy holiday season. I'm Michael Tingser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick. Be Maverick.